Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Crisis Group's senior Somali analyst, Omar Mahmoud, to talk about the future of the African Union's military mission in Somalia, known as AMISOM. Omar, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be here. So, AMISOM, the, the African Union mission in Somalia, we've, we've talked about it here and there, but we've never done a full episode on it on this podcast. It's facing a mandate renewal, and this one in particular, a lot of questions about its future, and particularly its funding are coming to the fore again. This whole discussion, I think, is going to revolve around this hypothetical to a degree. So I want to just actually start off quickly with that, which is what, what would happen, do you think, if AMISOM left Somalia right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, the crux of of the issue and basically comes down to people's assessments of how ready Somali security forces are to take on primary security responsibility in the country, because essentially that's what you would be asking. You would be pulling out the international backed Amazon mission and and allowing, you know, the the Somali forces to basically to, to fill that gap. And, you know, this is where the, the current government, the Famaju administrations, come up with a plan that's, that's uh, quite ambitious about their kind of takeover, saying this transition needs to start now and they'll be ready to take over by the end of 2023. So even in, in the most optimistic plan, they're saying, uh, you know, still, you know, a year and a half away for full transfer. You know, I, I think basically if the mission were to pull out immediately, you would have this security vacuum. And so if you withdraw Amazon, you lose some of that holding uh, ability, the ability to hold that ground in Somalia. And so then that opens up ground for al-Shabaab to take over over territory. And we've seen that time and time again, where, you know, there's a rotation or where, you know, there's a pullout of a particular village, al-Shabaab marches in right away. The end result is, is you would have a reversal of the security gains that have been made over the past, you know, 10, 15 years by by Amazon. Okay. And, and quickly, I want to dive back into the history. But but quickly, what would you say are the main frustrations with Amazon? I mean, it's had some successes in terms of originally taking back territory and now holding territory against al-Shabaab, as you mentioned. But obviously, the fact that this is becoming a dilemma uh, means that there's a lot of frustrations with the mission as well. So can you just quickly go over those? Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I think everyone's frustrated with Amazon for one reason or, or another. And, you know, a lot of this has to do with the fact that Earlier on in the mission's tenure, it's been there since 2007, it was making much more progress in terms of, if you measure that, in terms of advances on al-Shabaab territory, taking back areas from from the group. And since probably about 2015, those offensives have have slowed. Uh, Amazon will admit this as well. They they say they've gotten bogged down by holding territory because the, the backfill from Somali forces hasn't come forcing them to, to hold. Uh, the Somali forces will kind of say Amazon's lost its sort of motivations and its, its, its rationale to kind of go out there a little bit more. Um, so essentially, one of the main frustrations is that there's just a status quo that has continued over the past five, six years. And for the donors, this is actually, they, they consider it an expensive status quo. And they don't really see, you know, where the end state is and how they're making progress. And then sort of reluctant to continue funding that. So I think that's, you know, the main frustration when it comes down to it. You have this mission, which, you know, is important for Somali security, but at the same time, you don't see it advancing in any sort of sense. And, and so everyone's just stuck in this middle ground and looking for ways to get out of it. And of course, when people say frustrate with Amasom, of course, Amasom is directly tied to the entire, you know, state 
building project in Somalia. And so a lot of questions about that as well. Um, so we're going to get back to many of these topics here in a second. But can you take us back to when Amisom formed? How does it relate to the Ethiopian invasion in 2006, which toppled the Islamic Courts Union government in Mogadishu and then leading to the rise of al-Shabaab? And we've talked about this before in the podcast, but then where did Amisom come into the picture? I mean, Amisom essentially came in almost as an, as, as an exit strategy for those, those Ethiopian troops that had come into Somalia. You know, it, it was a unpopular invasion from, from the Somali perspective and it really spurred a lot of resistance. And, and so there was a push to get the Ethiopian troops out. You know, there was this idea at some point that this would be an EGAD-led mission. That didn't really materialize. It fell on the African Union. Uh, the initial mandate was actually for six months. And then there was this idea that it would transition to UN mission. And obviously that hasn't happened either. You know, it, it's not really a peacekeeping mission. We certainly can't say in any sense more peace enforcement, but really, you know, mo- most people would term it more of a war fighting mission. And so it kind of came in to protect the transitional federal government, which was still struggling to establish itself at the, at the time and establish itself in Mogadishu in, in, in addition. And, you know, so basically once Amasom came in and actually quickly became party to the conflict, which meant becoming, you know, a, a major combatant against al-Shabaab as well. And, and so it's kind of evolved since then, you know, the mission's expanded uh, significantly in terms of its troop numbers. There's been surges at times, but, you know, its origins really kind of relate to that idea that you had to get the Ethiopian troops out and had to have another kind of more um, multinational uh, force come in. Hmm. It's it's interesting that that was sort of the original problem I was trying to solve, because, of course, Ethiopia is now actually part of Amazon. So. How has it evolved in terms of the, you know, its regional structure? At first, it had no neighboring states. It was Uganda and Burundi. Now, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti are all part of it. So, like, walk us through how Amazon sort of has evolved in terms of its its makeup, which, you know, has also affected its mission. Yeah, so Ugandan troops were, were first there, the first commitments, um, and then Burundi very shortly thereafter. And, you know, that, that was kind of the status quo for, for a little bit of time. And essentially what happened was Kenya and Ethiopia have bilateral interests in Somalia, obviously. And, you know, we've seen that from Ethiopia's case where, where they've intervened on the ground in Somalia at times uh, before. And so uh, this came to pass again in around 2011, 2012, where Kenya actually took the decision to also uh, engage bilaterally in Somalia. And so they, they invaded and, and, you know, with this idea to establish some sort of buffer state in, in the south area, some ability to have some distance between them and, and al-Shabaab. And, and so once that happened, you know, very shortly after, some of their troops were rehatted into Amazon. Um, and, and so, you know, the same thing then happened uh, for Ethiopia a little bit later. You know, they, they came in as well around the same time and their troops were rehatted a little bit later. And so this served the purpose of providing more troop uh, power, more firepower to the Amazon mission, which at the time was actually struggling to get, you know, troops, uh, countries to sign up to it, given that it was such a, you know, uh, a dangerous environment. You know, not a lot of countries were willingly to jump into that fray. And so, you know, you normally in, in these sorts of missions try to avoid frontline states. Uh, but that was kind of the reality that they were the only ones willing to to commit additional troops at this time. 
But, you know, the, the flip side of that is why are they willing to do that? Well, it's because they have some of the bilateral security interests, uh, bilateral other sort of interests that they can also you know, pursue through this mission. So it's kind of been an uneasy compromise within that. You know, Djibouti also came um, at one point. Sierra Leone had sent a small contingent, but unfortunately, due to the Ebola crisis, they, they had pulled out and hadn't come back on, on the troop side either. Essentially, you had this evolve to where the regional uh, Somalia's neighbors now have a, a significant stake in the mission. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting when you when you go back and in, in the origin of the mission very much and providing an exit plan for Ethiopia. Um, I think, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of talk about Amazon pulling out revolves around a more resurgence of Al-Shabaab. But is it also true that if that if Amazon pulled out, that what you'd also might see is actually just a return to to more direct military engagement by the neighbors, assuming that they aren't willing to see Al-Shabaab um, take over and that that might be a sort of status quo that would step in? Exactly. I think that would be the most likely um, sort of scenario because you still have, you know, Kenya and Ethiopia with significant bilateral interests. You still have them actually maintaining troops in Somalia bilaterally outside of the Amazon mandate. So, you know, for example, Ethiopia has some troops that, that are part of Amazon and then some in the same areas outside of Amazon and, and through some, some, some sorts of other arrangements. You actually sometimes have awkward situations for Amazon itself where it has to deny certain operations or involvement in certain activities because they were happening bilaterally, um, even though, you know, it was Ethiopian troops or Kenyan troops involved. Um, but yeah, exactly. I think you, you'd have that sort of bilateral push. You know, the only thing that is changing a little bit is the geopolitics of the region is changing a bit as well from from you know a decade ago obviously ethiopia is going through some very serious internal uh you know tumult right now and so the questions about you know to what degree they could maintain forces on there are kind of raised and then even in kenya you know they, they've been in somalia now for over a decade i think there's increasingly questions especially from some opposition figures sometimes about what Kenya is doing in there, what they've achieved with their decades. It hasn't stopped Al-Shabaab from, from some, you know, huge attacks in, in Nairobi, for example. Um, maybe it's even, you know, incited that. Uh, so I think there's some some questions there about, you know, whether these, these assumptions would still hold in the current environment. But I do think it's very likely that at a minimum, you'd have those countries operating very strongly around their borders, if not further into Somalia. Mm. So I, I think on the surface level and, you know, often even in, in the conversations on these podcasts, you know, the parallels with Afghanistan, you know, get raised and are quite strong. Um, and parts of this sound a lot like Afghanistan in as much as an exit strategy for foreign forces that, you know, doesn't allow a group like Al-Shabaab to take power. But, you know, what's interesting in this case is actually that the Somali government uh, wants Amazon to leave also, which, of course, is, is you know, quite uh different than the Afghanistan example. Can you just explain the Somali government's position? Yeah, so the Farmasho administration came in and, you know, I think they were never huge fans of, of Amazon. And there's probably a couple of reasons for that. You know, one is there's this idea that Amazon is taking up, you know, a large pool of the international funding for security assistance to Somalia. So there's this idea that if you somehow removed Amazon or transitioned from it or got to a point where, you know, Amazon didn't cost as much, those funds could be transferred to Somali security forces. 
Now, of course, donors will say it's not that easy and, and you don't just go from one to the other. But I think that's, you know, uh, one of the underlying rationales that that the mission is just taking up so much of the money that could be spent more on, on Somali forces. And, and I do think there's some sympathy among some of some donors uh, around that viewpoint as well. The other sort of aspect is probably a bit more related to kind of the geopolitics and, and also, you know, a little bit of, of pride uh, and, and nationalistic um, reasons, you know, I think, I think, I think the, you know, this current government has been quite nationalistic, quite assertive about, about ensuring that uh, Somalia's sovereign rights are, you know, not trampled upon by outsiders, you know, regardless whether they've been able to, to back that up themselves at times, they very much push that agenda and push that narrative. And so I think you have a very sort of patriotic assessment of where, you know, the Somali security forces and the developments they've made. And, you know, certainly there has been progress. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not sure that this this sort of um, attitude or on, on the federal government's part is, is based solely just on battlefield developments. Uh, but it also then ties into this issue we've been talking about earlier about how Somalia's neighbors are very much involved in the country as well. And, you know, a lot of that happens through through Amazon as well. And so if you want to assert your kind of sovereignty over your, your country, one way to do that then would be to remove uh, the mission or at least start its, its kind of transition. And so, you know, for this administration, I think we've seen them, you know, they have pretty poor relations with Kenya and then also uh, Djibouti as well. And so it's quite awkward to have those poor relations at, and then at the same time have those troops in your country. And I think in the Kenya case, you know, the Fromage administration will blame them quite a bit for, for backing Jubaland and getting involved into internal Somali politics. Mm. And, you know, crisis groups assessment is that the Somali army is is sort of not ready to take over from Amasam. Can you, can you just explain the state of the Somali army? But also, is, is this really just a matter of time or is there something deeper going on there? Well, I think there's, uh, you know, a fundamental political dynamic to this. And so, you know, one of the issues I talked about earlier was, you know, it's not necessarily that hard to push Al-Shabaab from an area, you know, but it's much harder to hold that area and maintain it. So, so we see time and time again where the army goes out on offensives and yes, they're able to retake an area from Al-Shabaab. You know, you check in a couple months later and it's either fallen back into Al-Shabaab's hands or kind of gone back and forth a little bit. And, and so that's where the issue is on this kind of holding side, holding the, the ground. And a lot of that comes down to having the appropriate forces that can do that. And, you know, it's this issue of, of force generation of the Somali National Army. And are they generating the right sort of forces? A lot of the training that's going on uh, internationally, whether it's by the, the U.S. with the Danab or by some of the Turkish training, is still for the offensive side of operations, not necessarily the holding side. And so I think there's a big gap there. And what the approach was earlier was there was this national security architecture in 2017 that the Farmajo administration signed on very early in their tenure, which which basically was saying, you know, these holding forces, that there'd be um, a comprehensive agreement between the federal government and the member states, and the member states would contribute these forces. And that's where you'd, you'd kind of make up that gap. Now, due to the political sort of attitude of, of the Farmajo administration where it really didn't believe in this federal model in the same sort of way, they've really sought to focus more on developing centralized forces. And so that security architecture has not been implemented. And, and so to that effect, you know, you still have that gap in, the, in force generation for the holding forces. It hasn't been clear how that's going to be addressed. And so to me, it comes back to, to the politics. You know, if you had a working 
relationship between the federal government and the member states, then I think you can get to the security arrangements, which can help close that gap. But as long as the politics continue to interfere in that, then I think, you know, you see those, um, you know, downfield effects within the security forces as well. You know, it's obviously not in the interest of President Formaggio, you know, or Mogadishu to to see al-Shabaab retake territory in the case of an Amazon pullout. So it, when Mogadishu says it wants Amazon to leave, is this just a bluff? Is it wishful thinking? You know, I mean, how, how do you see that? Well, I think it's it's a hard position, but it's also, you know, no, no one's necessarily saying Amazon should leave tomorrow. You know, it's, it's more saying we need to get the transition going, that the mission is stuck in a status quo. And, you know, I think there's some merit to that. There are, you know, Amazon has, has become a bit stuck in some areas. You know, some of the areas they're holding, you know, it's unclear how strategic those are and whether it makes sense to put so much resources into that, for example. So I think there's ways you could sort of reorganize it. You know, I think you'll, uh, you know, often talk to Somali officials, defense officials, government officials, and, you know, everyone will say Amazon needs to go, Amazon needs to go. And then, you know, they kind of take this very hard position. And so then, you know, the follow up question is always, well, OK, so are you ready for them to leave tomorrow? When do you want them to go? And then it's always kind of a little bit of a walk back. Well, no, you, you know, we need a little bit more time. You know, we're not we're not ready right now, but we need to start the the process. And so I think that's what all of this is, is kind of about, just trying to see how the transition can begin. And, and so you get to a point where you do see how the mission will eventually leave. Mm. And, you know, that's how the government and others view it. How do you regular Somalis view Amazon if, if there is any sort of uniform viewpoint? Well, Amazon is not a very popular force. Uh, it, has, it has a definite image problem in Somalia. And I think that contributes to, you know, popular perceptions that, that the mission needs to go. And, you know, a lot of this is tied to human rights abuses. And, you know, there's been repeated incidences like that. There was just a, a particularly damaging one involving some Ugandan soldiers in, in Lower Shabele outside Mogadishu that for the first time, there was actually a very significant uh, trial around that and some prosecution. Two of those soldiers were actually sentenced to, to death, I believe, in three to very long prison terms. Uh, but that's kind of been an, an anomaly. And you see this in a lot of other contexts, but as a security provider is, is really also targeting the, the civilian population. You know, some interviews we've done very much attest to that and that feeds very negative perceptions of the mission. And so you combine that with this idea that it's also kind of been stuck in the status quo and not, you know, even taking on much of an offensive role. And so people kind of question, you know, what's the value of it? Why do you really even need it here if it's just kind of sitting there? And then anytime they do anything, civilians bear the brunt of it. So I think there's a definite image problem there. I think AU officials will admit this as well and say, you know, any future mission should even have a, a name change just to kind of signal the end of that era and, and initiation of a new one. So the EU, you know, funds has funded to some billion dollars since 2007. I mean, first of all, before we get into the sort of funding debates, uh, how is it that Brussels ended up becoming the funder for this African Union mission, you know, I think others who aren't paying attention might be surprised it's not, you know, largely US money or United Nations money. So so how is it that it ended up Brussels picked up the tab for this? Yeah, well, I mean, that was sort of the agreement very initially where the EU came in. And again, remember, this was a six month agreement at the time or a six month uh, mission. That was that was the vision before it shifted to the UN side. And, you know, the EU committed to pay the troop stipends which at that time were, were authorized, you know, I think there was around 8,000 troops that were authorized. 
And, and so now we're talking 14 years later uh, from, from, you know, from six months to 14 years, which was not expected. And then the troops have gone up from 8,000, you know, at their height, they were around 22 and a half thousand. Um, and now it's down to around 19 and a half thousand. Um, and, and so, so I think the EU made this uh, commitment, you know, that was their contribution to Somalia and Somali security at the time. Uh, but it was open ended in a way that they really didn't envision in 2000, you know, 21, they'd still be paying this this much money uh, for it. And so I think that's obviously contributed to the frustrations as well. There's been repeated pushes to get Amasom to come under um, UN assessed contributions, given that the mission's authorized by the UN Security Council, even though it's implemented by the African Union. Uh, but due to sort of the global environment and, and especially, you know, veto power from the US and to a lesser degree, you know, the UK at the Security Council, that option just hasn't really flown. And, and so that's where it's gotten us into this conundrum, actually, because the EU, you know, says rightfully they paid so much over over this amount of time they weren't expecting to do it uh they just don't can't continue in in the same sort of way but no one's really come to up with a, a solution to fill the gap can you, can you explain those uh global politics a bit more i mean obviously the u.s is heavily invested in you know counter-terrorism operations against al-shabaab and i presume doesn't want amazon to to leave uh, right away. So if they're not willing to pay some of this themselves, but they're also vetoing even the UN paying uh, more of this. So I'm just I'm just wondering why, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different reasons here. But, uh, you know, uh, really, the Amazon debate kind of gets wrapped up into wider questions about peacekeeping operations, about the peacekeeping budget, about the UN, about the AU's relationship to uh, the UN and, and, and sort of their uh, how much of their operations can be paid. And so those debates have been going on for quite some time. And there's this uh, sense, you know, one on the US side that, you know, there's some arrears where it comes to, you know, the, the budget that they're not willing to take on new uh, costs at this point. Uh, there's also this idea that you know, the AU and the UN have been negotiating for quite some time about, you know, some sort of budget sharing mechanism for, for their operations. And the, the idea was, you know, this wouldn't always include Amazon since it's such an expensive operation and an outlier. Uh, but this idea that, you know, maybe the UN covers 75% and the AU covers 25%. Well, you know, no one's really wanted to commit to Amazon to set a precedent around those kind of dynamics either before, you know, that debate is, is settled. Um, so, so there's a few different dynamics around that, but you know what we should point out is that Amazon does have a a logistical support operation called UNSOS, which is funded by the UN Security Council, and and so the U.S. will also argue that they already made a major exception to get some of this funding to Amazon. You know, they feel that you know it's a very unique setup. You know, I don't I don't think that's replicated anywhere in the world actually, where where the UN you know is is created an own logistics mission to support you know, a non, you know, UN implemented mission. Uh, so it's kind of this very weird, weird compromise, but it does allow some assessed contributions to get towards towards Amazon. And, and so I think that's what they'll argue that that's already happening. So we, we don't see the need then to, to go further down that route. Hmm. And of course, there's other powers, you know, who are heavily invested in Somalia, including Gulf countries and, and Turkey. Um, you know, China is a major power. I, I presume they haven't... Uh, express much interest in stepping in here either, I suppose, for many of the reasons that the EU itself is skeptical about uh, staying in any longer. 
Yeah, I mean, not in a significant manner. You know, sometimes you do have uh, some sort of one-off bilateral contributions. There's also a trust fund at the United Nations where member states can can add some contributions. Uh, But I think, you know, the current status of that is, is quite low as well. And, you know, I think this is, you know, kind of part of the, the issue when it, when it comes to Amisom. There was an attempt a couple of years ago from the AU side to drum up support, uh, a funding drive to reach out to some of these other countries, but really they, they came back empty, essentially. Honestly, I, I see that as part of the issue because a lot of countries that operate in Somalia now, especially ones that weren't operating there a decade ago, weren't able to do so a decade ago because it was too insecure. And so Amazon has provided that space and that that security. I think some of those other countries tend to view things bilaterally, invest, uh, you know, say their security investments are going straight to the Somali security forces, which is a contribution. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think there's there's a need really to for everyone to kind of pitch in an all hands on deck sort of situation at this moment, given that no one really wants to see, you know, a full reversal and, and, uh, and a lot are benefiting without kind of contributing. You know, to, to that point, I would also add, I, I think it's it would be useful if the African Union as well could kind of see if there's any sort of way that they might be able to contribute even sort of a small portion going forward. You know, Amazon is obviously very expensive. They've been developing their AU peace fund, you know, never with the idea to put it towards Amazon because it would eat up the, the whole budget. And, and that peace fund still isn't even, you know, at the level of where where they want it. But, you know, going forward, there's always been this idea that that the African Union and, and TCCs just want to kind of keep this going and that their main concern is financial you know, if the AU was able to contribute uh, even a little bit um, or even, you know, a specific component, uh, I think that would, you know, kind of assuage a lot of those concerns as well. Thanks, Omar. Uh, We're running a bit out of time, um, but while I still had you, um, we've sort of danced around, you know, the immediate politics going on in Somalia at the moment. Um, And of course, that's a, you know, that's sort of overhanging all of this, um, including the fact that there's still an election to take place. So it's unclear if the negotiations with the current government about Amazon, you know, if if that's going to be the future government or not. Um, We've had you on in the podcast uh, several times before to talk about the uh, politics in Somalia and this elections. Um, What's an update? Obviously, the elections haven't happened, but does it look like those elections are on track now to, to take place sometime in the near future? Well, so parts of the election process have occurred to date. So the upper house for parliament has been completed, which is, you know, one of one of the two houses. And then for the lower house, about two dozen of the 275 seats have also been completed. So in a wider sense, yes, there's been some movement. But unfortunately, I, I think those processes have been quite manipulated and, and, you know, just to be blunt, they've been quite terrible thus far. So I think we're at a point where it's actually, uh, you know, even though there's been a bit of progress, frustration is still building actually quite a bit with how the elections have played out thus far. And, you know, this is this is a bit unique because if you look at the last two uh, election cycles, which were also indirect, you know, they were also heavily manipulated. And it was hard to say that those were, you know, very good processes. But what they did do at the very end was produce a presidential election in which everyone accepted and there was a transfer of power at the, at the highest leadership. And, you know, the rumblings you're having right now are even questioning the legitimacy of this process to that to that point, you know, uh, to to where you would even get to the presidential election and some some parties might not 
even recognize it. So I think we're heading down a bit of a dangerous uh, road on that side. There's probably a, a need for a little bit of a, a pause and kind of reset to, to look at the manipulation that's happened thus far and kind of figure out ways to, to you know, ensure that doesn't continue to the rest of this process, uh, because otherwise I think it can get to a bit of a boil again. Hmm. And of course, a lot of this conversation, grim as it's been, has it assumed that there would remain, you know, stability, at least uh, some stability in the center. And of course, we've been concerned uh, that this election process all along, um, you know, could could lead to further violence if it's still not managed very well from the top. So you're hard at work on a on a report uh, for us looking at how and if and you know when uh, you would pursue talks with Al Shabaab. Can you just give us a teaser on how you're thinking through this process? Yeah, I mean this this is a, a tough one. So I think you know at, at the starting point is there's a lot more chatter about this, both in Somali circles and I think international circles about. Well, is there a future settlement with al-Shabaab? Is that in the realm of possibilities? And so I, I think we have to wonder, you know, is that chatter a result of frustration with the way the war is going thus far with, without seeing an end in sight? Or is it the result of some sort of genuine opening at this point? And, you know, I think it's probably more and more the former. Uh, that this is just a lot of frustration building in, in, the, in the search for alternatives. But that doesn't necessarily mean it should be dismissed out of hand either. But, you know, the key X factor here is obviously, you know, Al-Shabaab's willingness in all of this. And, you know, I have to say to date, you know, from, from a top, you know, organizational standpoint, we've seen real no indication uh, that, you know, this is kind of their path and this is their way forward. Now, could that be, you know, bubbling internally? You know, ab- absolutely. But at the same time, I think if we're talking about an actual settlement, you need to figure out a way in which, you know, the group as much as possible could be brought into that because otherwise you, you split it and you kind of have, you know, uh, this recurring cycle and, and kind of a rump that goes off and, and continues to combat the state. And we've seen that happen uh, before as well. But yeah, th- this is, a, I think, a very tricky one um, and one that requires a lot of delicate balance. Okay. And then finally, what prevents us from having this exact same conversation about Amazon five years from now? What, what do you think is the path forward? Yeah, I mean, this honestly is, is probably the ultimate point of the briefing we put out, and that is the political solutions. You know, we can talk about the technical, we can talk about the security all we want, but if there's not greater movement on the political side, I think we are having the same conversation five years from now. So that comes down to, you know, the federal government and the member states really getting on the same page, uh, resolving, you know, outstanding issues over, you know, who has what sort of powers and resources within that. And then I think, you know, if you can unlock that dynamic, that leads to some other sort of state building progress down the road, um, you know, such as the the Constitution and whatnot. But I think it starts from from that political impasse. And then the question is the wider settlement as well, because even if you resolve that, you still have a formidable adversary outside of that system. And so I so I think it's those kind of two frames, you know, resetting the, the federal member state federal government balance and then kind of seeing what can be done about Al-Shabaab going forward. All right. Uh, thanks, Omar, for another uh, tour de force through <laughs> another complex issue in uh, Somalia. Oh, happy to be back on the podcast, Alan. 
Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. If you want to read Crisis Group's full recent report on the future of Amazon, we will link to it in our show notes, or you can find it at crisisgroup.org. This episode was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi, and we'll be back again in two weeks.